Well, thanks so much for welcoming me. I appreciate it, even if prompted. Um, uh, so, uh, no, it's good. Um, this is one of those ones where I was kind of sitting at home, you know, for the last two or three weeks going, you know, what do you, what do you talk about on your first week, right? You're, you're coming in, you're new. Uh, do you, you do, do you do kind of like the new year thing? Do you, I'm new, it's a new year, it's a new season. Do you go on that? Uh, Chris did a wonderful job of sort of summarizing a lot of that stuff last week. So I thought, no, that's, that's probably not it. Do you, do I go back to something I've done before? Do I try to start a series and keep it consistent? I, I don't know. And then I thought, you know what, I'm just overthinking this. I'm, I'm overthinking it. It's fine. The reality is probably this first week nobody's really going to remember anyways. So I felt pretty comfortable with that. And then last week I learned that Nancy's going to write a journal about this. And I thought, oh gosh, okay. So now and then I'm rethinking the whole thing again. And... Um, and so what I settled on eventually was just something that I've, I've talked about uh, quite a bit over the last couple of years, um, especially in a role that I was in that I'm sure will come out at some point or another. Um, and it's something I'm really passionate about, and it's just the path to leading people um, towards Jesus and, and making sure that he is known to as many people as possible and making sure that we sort of get out of the way to let God do the work that he needs to do the work. Uh, in the lives of the people that we're meeting and in our lives uh, as well. So knowing as well, uh, and you'll see me do this from time to time, knowing as well that uh, there are some people that are watching this morning online, good morning, um, that uh, aren't normally church people but are just purely interested in, in me and, I don't know, w wondering if I'm going to fall off the stage or something like that. I wanted to make sure that I just set the stage and set the context of where uh, we were going to go uh, but before I do that, I have a question, and that's this. Are any of you list people? Is anybody here a list person? A handful of people. My wife is a list person. I'm not a list. I, I make lists because you have to. Um, my wife is like very type A. She has spreadsheets that organize her spreadsheets. She's one of these people, right? Um, and it keeps our whole life organized, and it's wonderful, and I'm so grateful for it. Um, and I just, you know, I was thinking that sometimes, you know, we make lists about all kinds of things in our lives, groceries and what we're supposed to do and where we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to do it. And we do it in the church too, I think sometimes. We make this list of, you know, who we want to see and what we want the church to be like and, you know, who the ideal person to walk in through the door is or, or you, know, you know, what people need to know sort of in order to get to know Jesus. And, and sometimes we don't necessarily admit those lists in our mind um, but they happen. And so I found this video, which I think is a little bit fun. And it's this girl, I think her name is Heather. And, uh, and she's got uh, some lists, too, of uh, things that she's looking for in a partner. And I'm just wondering, you know, after we watch this, maybe if we can analyze that a bit as we lead into our scripture. So, uh, James, go ahead. You can uh, play that. Heather bought me her list of requirements. So let's check them out. He must be between 30 and 45, financially stable, no kids, 5'10 or taller, no hookups or flings, ready to settle down, no roommates, no smoking, must love dessert and can't be anti-sugar. Okay, but there's some more requirements, so let's take a look at these. Must be uh, honest, reliable, sweet and kind, quick-witted, romantic, must love food, must pay on the first date, no flowers on the first date, 
must be a social drinker, and must never wear sweatpants. What? <laughs> Last guy I dated, he, we fought all the time because he wanted to go to Starbucks in sweatpants and go to breakfast in sweatpants, and no one should be doing that. Really? Yeah. Wow. All right, here we go. Let's see. Must be adventurous, must be humble, must be spontaneous, must be a planner, can't be self-centered, can't be cocky, must love dogs, can't own a dog from a breeder, can't be jealous of her dog, and can't own a cat. Okay, he can't be jealous of your dog? So the last guy I dated, he admitted after a few months that he was jealous of my dog, and he was kind of mean to my dog in the beginning. And he said that I gave my dog more attention than I gave to him. Did you? Well... I mean, my dog never fought with me. That's because your dog ain't got to live up to all the requirements. <laughs> you ready? Must be in shape. Can't have six-pack abs. Can't have six-pack abs. Can't be too skinny. Can't have a runner's physique. Can't be stronger than me. Can't be... <laughs> can't be obsessed with sports can't be a hunter, can't own a boat, can't be a gamer, can't be materialistic, uh, must respect a gluten-free... <laughs> must respect a gluten-free diet, can't be too close to family and friends, must open doors for me, must be willing to move someplace warm, must love traveling, can't, can't brag about traveling. Oh, oh, we can go there, but you can't tell nobody. <laughs> You shut your mouth. What you telling everybody we was in Arizona for? Uh, must maintain eye contact. Can't be a party boy. Can't be intimidated by me. Favorite season can... What? Favorite season cannot be fall. They're so typical. It's a very... Everyone's favorite season is fall. And so then they want to go pumpkin picking and apple picking and, and to haunted houses and... And it's just, like, it's watching the same movie and knowing the ending every single time. Do you like quiet time? I do. You're going to have a lot of... <laughs> oh, that's fun, right? That's great. Okay, so, so she's got a list, right? And she's got this list that she's developed in. And you can tell, even as she sits here, that she goes, this is completely and utterly realistic. This is totally reasonable, and we sit here and we giggle. And so the challenge that I want us to think about as we sort of run through this morning is what's on our list as members of the church, as Christians, as people of faith? When we start to approach people, when we want to tell somebody about our faith, what's that thing on your list? Is it, oh, they don't know that much about the Bible yet, or they're, they're this, or they're that, or they're whatever? We've all got a little bit of that. We've got that in church, right? It's what music are we going to sing? What are we going to listen to? That kind of, all these little things, they're a part of the list. So as we go through this morning, that's just sort of the challenge that I want to go through. And as we do that, I want to do that sort of in the context. I say the next generation, but really what I mean is the next generation 
of believers, the next group of people that are going to get to learn about who Jesus is in a real and personal way. And for those of you that maybe your New Year's resolution was to go to church for the first time, and this is your first week, and you haven't been in 20 years, I just want to let you give a little bit of context as to where we're talking from. So this morning's story is out of the book of Acts, which is, of course, in our Bible. And our Bible, uh, really, uh, in Greek, it's tabiblia. It just means a book of books. That's really all than it means. And your Bible is split up into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? And Testament uh, means what? Does anybody know? Does anybody know what the word Testament means? No? Okay, you're going to learn one thing this morning. That's exciting. Or just nobody wants to yell. Testament just means promise, right? Testament means promise or covenant. So you've got the uh, Old Testament, which is uh, God's promise through Abraham that he's going to bring a savior, and of course he does, and that's Jesus. And then you've got uh, that being fulfilled with the, the uh, birth of Jesus. And then you've got the New Testament, the New Covenant, where uh, Jesus says he's gone to prepare a place for us and bring us back to heaven with him. And so within that, we're speaking out of the New Testament this morning, book of Acts, uh, about things that happened after Jesus was here on earth, uh, written around uh, 80 or 90 A.D., um, just for context, there's when Jesus was alive, uh, 30 to 60. Written by this guy named Luke. He was uh, a historian and a doctor. He was there to track everything, uh, all the movements, everything that uh, Jesus had done in his life. And so here's the story coming out of Acts uh, 15. We're going to jump around a little bit, so here we go. And you'll notice that I jump in the middle of Scripture quite often, so just be ready for that. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some of the other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the laws of Moses. So let's just jump into the context here for a second. Uh, first of all, those certain people in the story, those are just Jewish teachers of the law, right? Rabbis, uh, the Pharisees, folks that were in charge of understanding, knowing, and to some degree helping people follow or enforcing uh, the laws. Moses, of, of course, we know is a famous Jew uh, from the Old Testament. Ten Commandments, Red Sea, wrote a lot of the law. We know who Moses is, most people. And then the Gentiles. The Gentiles are this non-Jewish group of people. In this case, they're the ones that are trying to get to know Jesus. And they are culturally and to a certain degree geographically in a different place. And this is really important as we go through because this is a little bit of what we're dealing with in today's context when we're teaching about Jesus. We have a lot of different cultures and subcultures living all among us. Some of it's generational. We're going to get into that in a second. Some of it's just faith-based. Some of it is uh, a lot of people are moving around the world a lot more than they used to. We're dealing with a lot of different cultures in the same place. And this is what they were dealing with here too. They were dealing with a group of folks that lived generally in the same region but were very, very different culturally culturally than who and how they were, right? So that's kind of what's going on. First century uh, Jesus followers are trying to spread the message of Jesus to a new group of people that don't understand. 
All Jews were circumcised because of the law. And so the Pharisees thought that it should still be happening to the new adults that were coming into faith. And Paul and Barnabas, identifying a barrier to this, go to Jerusalem and talk to them about it. So let's keep going into the, into the Scripture here. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe that it's through grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So what's happening here is Peter says, you know, I've been called to teach these Gentiles. And here's, here's what I'm thinking. God has purified their hearts, not necessarily through action, but through faith, just as he gave it to us. And just like Paul and Barnabas have identified, there's a bit of a barrier here. I imagine, again, I wasn't there and maybe I have a bit of an imagination, but I see Paul and Barnabas teaching these Gentiles, these people of a different culture, about Jesus, about all the things that he's done, about this new way and and Paul and Barnabas are saying, you know, God came to earth. The God who created you intentionally came to earth just for you. And the Gentiles are going, oh, that's interesting. And, 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 and he advocated for groups of people that never had before, for women and for children. And he lifted up the poor and the sick. And he cared for everybody the same because they're all his children. And they went, oh, wow. And, and then Paul and Barnabas said, and this God wants to get to know you and he wants to make a place for you in heaven and he wants to be in relationship with you and the Gentiles are starting to get excited and they're going, wow, this is really cool. How do we follow Jesus? Can we do this? And Paul and Barnabas goes, yeah, we're just going to grab the scissors if you can come over here for a second. At which point the Gentiles went, whoa. <laughs> what? <laughs> Hold on a minute. There's a barrier, a cultural barrier between them and the Jews and Peter and Barnabas and Paul said, how do we bridge that gap? Uh, right? What's my next slide there? I think I've lost my spot. Oh, yes. Thank you. And then they mentioned this unbearable yoke. Right? He says, uh, he says, we are expecting these folks, these Gentiles, who did not grow up in our culture, who did not grow up learning all the things that we know, to do all the exact same things we're called to do. There are 613 laws in the Torah that we can't even figure out all of the time. How are we going to expect these people to do that before they can get in relationship with Jesus? So here's the next part of the scripture. It says, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals, right? So Jesus gets up, sorry, James gets up, brother of Jesus, and he says, you know, it just shouldn't be this hard to get to know God. It just shouldn't be this hard to get to know the creator of the world, the one who made you and me. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't follow him because we're going to put a couple of things in place 
we're going to make sure that some of these things are followed just as we do today, but let's leave room for the Spirit to work in their lives, for God to do a little bit of work, for us to, to have to do everything as well. And so when I think about all this and I think about evangelizing and, and the next generation and people who need to get to know God, I, I often think, boy, do we know who the people are <laughs> that we're trying to tell about Jesus? Do we know our audience? Do we know those folks? This is something that you're going to learn that I'm pretty passionate about, understanding where people are in their context so that we can bring the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ into their lives. So I've done a lot of work in this area over time, and I just wanted to let you know a couple of things that I've been thinking about here. First of all, a lot of different generations, uh, most of them represented here this morning, silence, uh, 28 to 45. Any, uh, any of that generation here this morning, don't be afraid to wave. If you are, not too many. A couple there, okay, that's great. Baby boomers were born from 46 to 64. Where are my baby boomers at? Okay, a few more hands, good. Uh, Gen X, 65 to 80. Where are my Gen Xers? Wonderful, that's great. Uh, millennials, that's me, 81 to 96. My millennials are here. Do you know why, do you know why they call us millennials? It's because narcissist is too hard to spell. That's why. That's true. There's a lot of S's in there. And, um, and the Gen Zers, right, uh, 97 to uh, 2003, or 2013. Are, the, are there any of those in here this morning? Do we have any of those? A few. Okay. So we have all of these groups, and they're all in different cultural parts, and we all know this. And then, you know, we have people coming in, and, and, and there's just a lot of different things, and people are in a lot of different places. And one of the big things that we're dealing with right now is this group called the nuns. Have you heard of this group? I've got a slide here for you that kind of shows that in the 1970s, about 4% of our country were religious nuns. Those are people that are non-religiously affiliated. So if you did a census and it said, are you a Christian, uh, you know, Catholic, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, Jewish, uh, uh, whatever, 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 and then you added even their um, agnostic or atheist, if you were none of those things, you were a nun, and so you would put none. In 1970, our country was 4% nuns. In 2011, the last time we have solid data on this, it was 24%, which is a pretty big jump in that period of time. Now, some new research um, from EFC came out and said that if you were to combine the nuns with those that would also associate with agnostic and atheist, last year you'd have about 50% of our country. That's a big swing. That is a huge <laughs> swing away from a whole lot of things, like people following the faith and biblical knowledge. Biblical knowledge is one of the big ones here. Look at this. Biblical understanding in the 1960s. Let's say, let's put it on a chart, like a 0 to 10 chart. Let's say 1 is somebody who has no relationship with Jesus at all, and 10 is somebody who's come to faith. In the 60s, um, Generally, Christian beliefs were understood and known, right? There was prayer in schools. Uh, there was, you know, everybody, went, more people went to church than not. It was, it was kind of more noteworthy if your family didn't go to church uh, than if it did, right? There were uh, Christmas plays and, you know, all of these types of things. And even the average person, even if they weren't really committed, knew, you know, uh, Adam and Eve and David and Goliath and all of these stories. But today, that's just not the culture that we're living in. Even though we're living geographically in the same spot, today we're culturally living in a place where the nuns are in a very different spot. They have very little or no knowledge 
of the relationship with Jesus. And this is how, as a church, this is one of those things on our list. This is one of those things that we just kind of assume people have. Well, if you're going to come to church, we're going to talk to you like you have this much knowledge. And if you don't, well, you better catch up. It happens a lot. And it's interesting because what we wouldn't do is we wouldn't take a kid in grade three and plop them into a university-level class and expect them to succeed. But in church, that is kind of what we do. (laughs) Because an expectation of what you're supposed to know is on your list. And so I just came up with this little phrase, and it just says, when we consider who we're trying to welcome as a church, we become more welcoming. That makes sense. This is what James and Paul and Barnabas were talking about. Gen Z, I was a youth pastor for a really long time. And so here's just a couple little fun things about Gen Z that uh, Tim Elmore talks about. First is, is that they don't need adults to get information. They don't. Because they can, and some people go, really? Yeah, because they can Google something way faster than you can tell them or they can wander down the hall. Of course they can. That doesn't mean that adults aren't important. (laughs) It just means that perhaps our role is changing a little bit. Changing from education to wisdom and insight and discernment. And that's a shift in the church that sometimes we need to make. One of the things on our list is you come here. Hi, sweetheart. Um, (laughs) You come here and you learn from us. You teach us what we want you to know. What we need to learn about this generation, this next generation, regardless of the age, is they're coming in with a lot of knowledge about church, about Jesus, about faith. And some of it's here and some of it's there and some of it's been here, grabbed from here and some of it's been grabbed from there and it's our job to listen and to discern what that is, right? I've got a story about this. Uh, Like I said, we used to run a landscaping company. We had a truck breakdown one day. I knew it was an alternator. And so we uh, pulled over to the side of the road. We had uh, our second truck there with us, thankfully. I pulled the alternator out. I went to the store. I bought a new alternator. I came back, I watched a couple of YouTube videos, I got my tools out, and then I called my mechanic. And I said, hey, Ryan, I got this problem. I, I should have just called you. I wish I'd known, Jason, but next time, that's where I'm going to go. Um, and I said, hey, I've got this problem. This is the alternator that I'm dealing with. What do you think? And he went, well, you know, if you stick a screwdriver in there and you just kind of pin it, and you pin the thing, it, it slides in a lot nicer. And I said, thanks. And I put it in and away we went. Because in that moment, I didn't need Ryan for all of the knowledge of how to, but I did need his experience and his wisdom. And that's what this next generation of folks needs. They've got a lot of knowledge in a lot of cases. What they need is somebody to sit and listen and ask questions and offer insight. Here's another thing Gen Z is dealing with more than most of us. It's that uh, they can broadcast their every thought and emotion in real time. So here's what I'd like you to do for a second. I'd like you to close your eyes and I'd like you to think about the dumbest thing you ever did that you didn't get caught doing. It's always a couple of giggles. Now I want you to open your eyes and think about how different your life or your upbringing would be if that thing had been live tweeted in real time to everybody you knew and 100,000 people you didn't. And we don't think about it that way, but that is something that this generation is dealing with. It's all new. To a degree, it's self-induced, but that doesn't really matter. It's a part of our culture. So how do we as Christians who are trying to get this message across understand that as people are working through things, they're not working through them in private nearly as much as they used to? 
How do we have grace for that? How do we find those spaces to make sure people can learn about Jesus in a way that isn't difficult? When we consider who we're trying to welcome, right, we become more welcoming. The third one is this. I was just having a conversation with the church about this yesterday. Um, Understanding this next generation and, and just this desire for technology. Sometimes we shake our fists at technology. We all do it. Right? I've known churches that have like the phone basket at the door. Put your phone in, take it out. Some youth groups do that. I was having a conversation yesterday uh, at an elders retreat um, that we were leading for a church where we were talking about sort of the printing press and how uh, there's no group of people that were more upset about the printing press and its existence than the church. <laughs> because you used to have to come to have the scripture read to you, but now you <gasps> could read it on your own. And now, 500 years later, the church is still struggling because, okay, you could read the scripture on your own, but at least you had to come here to us for community with other Christians. Oh, but the internet has changed that too. Now we can develop community online and we know that online and in person is different, but that still exists, right? This quote from this book that I love, Growing Young, says, it's tempting for older generations to greet young people riveted to their devices with four words. Put that thing down. But a better way, a growing young response, is to understand why they hunger for digital connection. As a technology scholar and researcher, Dana Boyd suggests, Fear is not the solution for technology. Empathy is. Here's something that I don't like to say out loud, but is actually true. I'm not sitting up here saying this should happen. A lot of times you're going to hear me say something like, uh, I don't necessarily like this, but it is what it is. And the sooner we come to the reality of it, the better we're going to be able to tell people about Jesus. A phone is a per part of a young person's identity now. It just is. It's attached to them. It's in their pocket. How many times... Admit it to yourself. You don't have to do it out loud. Have you left the house, realized you not had your phone, and you might as well not be wearing your shoes? You feel naked. It's not necessarily good, but it's the reality of where we're at. And so that's another one of those things on our list, isn't it? You come into church, you put your phone down. You put your phone away. Because what we don't think is, well, maybe that person is reading. Maybe, because I've seen this, and I guarantee this has happened to you because it's happened to me, have you ever been fact-checked in real time by a student? Yeah, that's terrifying, right? I've been fact-checked in real time. I've said something, watched a student go, I don't think that's right, and grabbed their phone and checked it out. And I'm going, oh boy, <laughs> right? But that's part of what we're dealing with. That's the culture that we're dealing with. And on our list is, that shouldn't be there. This is where you come, and this is this, is this, is this, is this. is. And Paul and, and Barnabas... And James, they all said this. They said, we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We shouldn't make it difficult. It shouldn't be hard to get to know Jesus. Because I think sometimes we take a little bit more of that responsibility on ourselves that we need to. We say, we need to bring people from 1 to 100. We need to people bring 1 to 10. We forget that it's not us that changes people's hearts. It's God that changes people's hearts. It's the Holy Spirit working in their lives that changes people's hearts. It's us living in their lives and working and being an example and being there and giving access and saying, you can talk to us anytime. Look, here's who Jesus is. And then allowing God room to work. 
So this morning as I read that set of Scripture, my challenge to you just is this. What's on your list? What's on your has-to list? What's, what's the list in the front of your head, but what's the one in your back of your head that you don't talk about? That one where you said, boy, if we're going to welcome people into the kingdom, they better blank, blank, blank. How can we introduce Jesus to people and then let God start to do the work and the Holy Spirit start to do the work in their lives? How are we making it more difficult than it needs to be (laughs) to hear the message of Jesus? This is something that I work through almost all the time, struggle with every day as a person who's trying to figure out how to tell people about God. I just sit there and I go, am I, am I letting God work or am I getting in the way? And I hope and I pray that I'm not. And so my prayer for you and uh, our time together is that we find ways to take the name of Jesus and get it out into our communities to get it out into the people that you know, to get it in front of everybody we can because sometimes we just need to take that first step and just say, God, this is up to you. Can you go with the rest? Can you lead us where we're going to go next? And sometimes that means more wisdom and not teaching and sometimes that means it's more questions than answers and sometimes it's against all that stuff that was on our list. But I would encourage you and challenge you to think about that as we move forward as a church, as we figure out what's next as we tell the nations about the name of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, thanks so much for this morning. Thanks for the opportunity that we have to to get together to uh, pray for uh, those in our communities, to try to find out how we can get your name in front of those who don't know you yet. And Lord, sometimes I think we put a little bit too much of it on ourselves, God. We are, we're the adults in the room. We have been going to church our whole lives. We're so smart. We know all the things that we're supposed to say. But God, I just pray that you would challenge us to lean on you in those moments. To lean on the wisdom of Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James to say, how do we get your name and your love and your care for the people in our lives in front of them? And then how do we depend on you to lead us to do the rest and your Holy Spirit to work in their lives, God? And I just pray as we do that this morning and as we do that going forward that you would give us encouragement, uplift us, give us the words to say, give us the wisdom, give us the things to do so that we can not work for ourselves or work for our church, but work through you and work for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.